Welcome to the first episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast brought to you by Cannabis Science and Technology. I'm Meg LaRue, Group Editorial Director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines and one of your podcast co-hosts. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other podcast co-host. Each month, Meg and I will discuss all things cannabinoid related with a special guest. From the latest trends in research to analytical testing, cultivation, extraction, and more. On this month's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. John Abrams, Chairman and CSO of the Clinical Endocannabinoid System Consortium. Here, he shares some fascinating information about his background in the cannabis industry and current research projects, as well as a terrific discussion on the cross-section of cannabinoids and virology. Yes, Dr. Abrams gave us some great insight on a recent study related to viruses, COVID-19, CBD, and the immune system. Join Meg, Dr. Abrams, and I as we expand our NOID knowledge. Hello, podcasters. Today, we will be interviewing Dr. John Abrams, Chairman and CSO of the Clinical Endocannabinoid System Consortium, CESC. Dr. Abrams is here to discuss his role in the cannabis industry, how the endocannabinoid system interacts with our immune systems, the CESC, and more. Dr. Abrams entered the cannabis industry after a successful career investigating antibodies as therapeutic agents. His cannabis industry accomplishments include developing a novel chemotyping algorithm for cannabis categorization. He will also share some information about the dosing project he worked on, his latest publication chapter in Advances in Cannabis Science, and labeling concepts. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Abrams. Wow, thank you very much for the the review and, and the the survey of my career. That's really great to hear. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to our session. Great. Let's dive right in. How did you go from biochemistry, immunology, and pharma development to cannabis research? Well, it's a long story in a way. Um, I've always had, from age 15 on, an abiding interest in cannabis, having grown up in the Bay Area and gotten a chance to sample the commodity very early in my, uh, in my development uh, as a 15-year-old. I enjoyed the experience and was very intrigued at what is going on in terms of the changes in consciousness and experience one is getting. But this is the late 60s. And uh, while we were all enjoying those times, the science wasn't really uh, strong enough to support really understanding all of these questions. So it made sense to go into the area of biochemistry, which um, is foundational for this. I also kind of did a parallel course in linguistics um, because there, there was perhaps ways of getting at the brain underpinnings of language and all, and it was accepted in a, you know, a very standard, uh, standard uh, uh, field to be in. So I would say um, while I was intrigued with the changes in states of consciousness, that something like cannabis could induce, um, it was just too early. And I wasn't going to build a career around that in the 60s and 70s. But biochemistry and pharma 
were the way to go. This was the dawn of the monoclonal antibody era. And it became clear to me that that was going to be a very lucrative and important area to be in. And that, of course, turned out to be the case. And so it let me ride that for a good number of decades. But there was always this longstanding interest in what is really going on with cannabis and cannabinoids and other um, ingredients that are all part of the botanical that affect the cannabis mind and, and the state of consciousness and all that. And so for the last turn of my scientific wheel, as I look towards um, passing this on in legacy mode as I get older, I wanted to really dive in and make a, an effort in this space. And so for the last decade or so, that is really what I've been concentrating on. And I think we all thank you for it. So how does the endocannabinoid system interacts with the immune system? Well, it's still a work in progress. Um, we certainly are understanding the better and better the receptor vocabulary that is part of the endocannabinoid system and what it shares in common with immune system components. Let me just break this down for a moment. Um, receptors are the locks that the active ingredients or ligands fit into in key mode and unlock pathways of signaling and effector function. So it's kind of the basis of pharmacology. In fact, when we talk about drug development and we talk about if this is uh, an effect which is druggable, what we really mean by that is, can we determine what the receptor mechanisms are that are behind that? Because that's kind of the lingua franca of pharmacology and drug development. And so when we turn to the endocannabinoid system, uh, since Meshulam's discovery of the active ingredient of uh, Delta-9 THC and the subsequent um, description of some of the canonical receptors uh, they have a fancy name, G-protein coupled receptors. It describes a certain receptor class. Um, he, his, he and his team were among the first to describe these endogenous receptors. Uh, we began to be able to understand what types of organ systems, cell systems in the body these are on. And we found that there are classes that are on immune cells and uh, notably the uh, CNR2, CB2 receptor is a main player uh, on immune cells. So that starts to bridge the gap between uh, endocannabinology, if you will, and immunity. And it goes on from there. There are other receptor types. We may be talking about that um, in a bit during this presentation. Um, but we certainly, they certainly share elements in common between the immune system and the endocannabinoid system. Uh, and therefore, if the receptors are in common, the endogenous ligands, that is the, the keys, the endogenous uh, compounds that we make ourselves that trigger these receptors are going to act in common. We've all known for years there are neuroimmune interactions 
Um, this has been a big, it, it's been an effort in the field of immunology over the decades, not necessarily maybe so mainstream, but of great interest. And I think uh, cannabis, cannabis science and cannabinoids provide an incredibly fruitful opportunity to get at the question of neuroimmune interaction. And so again, I'm pleased to be able to be participating in that in the last turn of my wheel. So interesting. Um, so there's been some research and discussion on cannabinoids and cannabis as a potential treatment for COVID-19. Can you comment on some of that research, such as the preprint University of Illinois study? Yes, it's a very interesting paper, isn't it? And one of the questions I have is, this is now, what, six months since it's appeared? And it's been, it seems like a bit of a low burn or not much traction being given to it. I find that kind of a little bit of a head scratcher. Why is this not being talked about more uh more loudly or more commonly in the cannabis or in mainstream press in general. I don't understand that, but I think it's a very important work. And maybe we can spend a few minutes trying to deconstruct it, if that's okay. Uh, I'd absolutely love that. Uh, uh, I was fortunate enough to read this paper, uh, I guess, in April or so, and I've been trying to tell anybody that'll listen. So uh, to have you here and help explain it to to anybody and everybody that'll listen to us, uh, please, let's spend a few minutes on that. And so, in essence, I see this paper as a mashup of two disciplines. Um, it's Although the order of events in the paper goes from the in vitro pharmacology, that is with uh, recombinant cell lines and pathways and effects of cannabinoids on those pathways, a very notable but a very wonky, uh, subtle and complicated kind of discipline. The story ends with results from clinical cohort studies of epidiolex patients, that is patients that are taking the approved and registered GW Pharma anti-epilepsy CBD preparation and surveying them in an observational fashion for COVID-19 incidents. Um, and what they had to do, of course, is to do that cohort study appropriately, you had to balance it with age, gender, sex matched, et cetera. So, while it's a little bit of an artificial construct, the, the, the main message to me is that in an observational mode, preliminary evidence indicates that there may be some kind of prophylaxis going on with CBD administration against a virus like SARS-CoV-2. The other part of the paper though, is the in vitro cell line paper or, or in vitro cell line analyses. And again, it's, it's wonderful work. It's very sophisticated. The University of Chicago team is well known for their genomic studies in this area. Um, 
the only caveat or um, well, I don't want to say criticism, but um, what should be taken into account is the cell line they're using is it's a little bit of a simulacron. In other words, um, it's not a natural cell line. It's a very well-established lung cancer cell line that has been in research. I've used it decades ago. Uh, it's been used for, for a long time. Um, who knows what it really has to do with lungs anymore, other than the original derivation came from a lung carcinoma. That being said, the cell line was engineered to include the appropriate receptors for receptor for SARS-CoV-2 entry, ACE2. And in a follow-on study in parallel, they did it for MHV virus, murine hepatitis virus, which is a form of coronavirus. So they're looking at a couple of different viruses in this mode. And of course, what, what they found is a series of gene upregulate or uh, expression of, of gene transcript changes. And they did some very sophisticated genomic analysis and pretty much targeted it to the interferon pathway, which um, interferon is an endogenous uh, chemical that, uh, protein that we make. It's a large family of molecules. Um, it is primarily or importantly, I shouldn't say primarily, but it is involved in viral defense. It's part of our innate defense mechanisms. And so to see that uh, in their hands, CBD tr triggers this upregulation of interferon pathways. And I feel that is a robust and appropriate finding. Um, I find that extremely interesting. How am I doing? Is this um, this, coming across, I to make it sense to me. Uh, so they were were increasing the cells' ability to make interferon, which my understanding is these viruses, SARS-CoV two, uh, the the mouse hantavirus, um, they they inherently downregulate those pathways when they infect these cells to to help them proliferate anyway yes um downregulate sure or it is let's just turn it on its positive aspect the native the innate defense against virus is to upregulate these pathways and therefore try to inactivate the virus within the cells. That's kind of how innate defense works. Um, I hesitate to call it immunity because these are not cells of the immune system per se, but this is innate viral defense that a lot of our cells or our cell machinery does. So uh, I'm very interested in the possibility of cannabinoids like CBD to upregulate our innate defense against virus. My one criticism, if I may, uh, on this work is it's foundational, but it's the beginning. And because they chose a 
uh, a cell line and they put they made a recombinant cell line out of it with uh, the viral receptor. Um, it's a little bit, as I said earlier, an artificial construct. And as I said earlier in this in this podcast, uh, ligands interact with receptors, and so um, the administered cannabinoid CBD, for example, is going to interact with whatever CBD receptor machinery is on these cells. That's luck of the draw. What you get in this particular cancer cell, so it may be a little bit artificial to say that this is only a CBD phenomena. Uh, in the work that they present, they are not finding it for uh, this kind of antiviral effect for other cannabinoids, but that in fact may be uh, simply because of the cell lines that they chose to work with. And so thinking more broadly, it's a great start, but I don't think this story is necessarily completely limited to CBD. Um, and I think that's the, the more forward-looking view that I would have. It's a great start, but there may be more here than what we just learned from this paper. Well, I mean, it would be great uh, for this paper to finish being peer-reviewed and to actually get published somewhere as well. That that. That would be the rest of the start, wouldn't it? Then, then somebody could actually use it as their foundation. Um, Interesting but. question on peer review, isn't it? Because um, what, in essence, it kind of is, is a white paper out of the NIH. And we, I think, scientifically or in scientific information presentation these days, we're in this transition between traditional classic peer review and what goes out on the internet and is either thumbs up or thumbs down or liked or not liked or whatever, or comes out in preprint like plus one and is uh, evaluated with reviewers as it can. So it's we're transitioning, I think, in this era of internet and social media and all that to find uh, different pathways of disseminating that information. And I don't think it makes it any less valid. It's just maybe we've got other pathways now. I certainly take this as a very important piece of work. Uh, and I'm going forward in my own thinking how we would uh, capitalize on this, peer review or not. Well, that's, a, that's a fantastic forward thinking uh, viewpoint. And uh, I... I tend to agree with you, especially when the work is done properly and seems to stand on its own. You know, uh, preprint in bioarchive is is certainly uh, more trustworthy than uh, what you read on some random website. So, uh, and and the group behind this is. Uh, has no shortage of laurels in their caps. So uh, I I think that this information is is really important, and I can't wait for more people to to do discovery off of its back. Yeah, I, I think it's timely. I, I really do. And you know, as I said, we are certainly thinking how to incorporate this into our own thinking within the CESC going forward. 
So uh, the last question I have about this, uh, or maybe it's not the last question, but another question mm -hmm. I have about this is um, the the insights that are gleaned out of this, that, that CBD is likely an effective antiviral uh, agent and uh, can can have uh, a number of positive effects. Uh, is is there uh, an at home remedy or preparation that you know isn't uh, smoking hemp uh, uh, a, a way that's available to most people since uh, prescription epidiolex isn't really readily available? So it's a great question, and. Here's where we get into this kind of netherworld situation where, as we know, there's an awful lot of CBD products out on the marketplace. Um, so, and regulated or not, they are out there. They are available to consumers. And so folks are in a position to try available products, they, they can gain access to them. Um, the question is going to be on efficacy. Do they work or not? And so um, my two points on that are we may have or we do have observational approaches much along the lines of how the cohort, the epidiolex um, SARS-2 cold infection cohort was done that we could survey usage um, of community-based products, those that are generally available in the marketplace, and look for appropriate outcomes. So my first answer is, yeah, there's available products out there that might work. When I took the numbers out of the in vitro studies that were presented in the, uh, in the University of Chicago paper that we just discussed, and kind of massaged and ran numbers to try and look at what that might mean in terms of in vivo levels in man, I was really happily surprised to see that we're not that far off in terms of numbers that may be attainable from products that are available already in the marketplace. So I guess the quick answer is, well, maybe we're already there if we just figure out the best products and the dosing regimens to use in terms of leading to some general wellness claim or improvement in overall antiviral status. Maybe if you are on uh, some kind of maintenance CBD dose that you choose to use as, like you might be using vitamin C or something, that you're going to create, you're going to upregulate your endogenous interferon pathways and your antiviral immunity, and that will show up in less uh, less viral illness over the course of the year. This is not necessarily COVID, uh, SARS COVID-19 specific. This is maybe general antiviral. So your overall state of health may go up. You may have less sick leave uh, incidences or you know, incidents of missing work because you've got uh, a general antiviral adjuvant, if you will. Um, so that's one main answer here. The other one is 
Um, we've experimented on our own with a long, uh, long, well-known botanical method of creating um, a botanical beverage that you can drink, namely decoction, which is where you boil botanical products to extract the actives. I mean, this is this is in uh, folk pharma and folk medicine for millennia. Chinese has special terms for decoction. It's all over the herbology literature. And a couple of years ago, we did studies with um, looking at CBD, CBDA, THC, THCA content in decoctions of various cannabinoid-type flowers, type 1, 2, or 3. And we have levels there that we've measured by um, uh, HPLC methodology, standard cannabinoid test methodology, which is being used in the field, which uh, are in line with what we are seeing that could be pharmacologically active based on the in vitro work in the University of Chicago paper. So we're all in the same ballpark here. And it may be that decoction strategies or um, beverage strategies uh, are an effective approach to uh, getting accessibility to this to those that don't have or can't afford epidiolex prescriptions. And anyway, epidiolex at the moment would have to be used off-label because its label recommendation is for epilepsy, pediatric epilepsy, not antiviral well-being. Yeah, there aren't too many uh, drugs out there prescribed as general panaceas anyway, are there? No, I mean, this falls into the supplement and wellness claim arena, doesn't it? And so um, it becomes intriguing uh, whether this just gets added to the list of CBD benefits on wellness, a general antiviral boost. Um, you know, I don't know where this goes, but we're certainly going to pay more attention to this in our own survey work that we're planning uh, with version two of the dosing project. Yeah, and I think this can take a, take you, um, right, we're, we're talking primarily about virology here, but there there's greater immunological uh, implications uh, from, from the endocannabinoid system and our interaction with phytocannabinoids. Uh, maybe, maybe you can uh, sort of talk about where the divergence happens and, and what else uh, you might be looking at. Well, no, thank you for that question, Evan. It's, it, it's a great lead in. This has been so far very CBD centric, our discussion, and we kind of um, have not touched on, uh, well, the main intoxicating ligand that we all know and appreciate, THC, and, you know, maybe in certain situations, THCA. But that's the prima facie agent that um, triggers both CB1, CNR1, and CB2, uh, CNR2. And it was CNR2 that I mentioned earlier is present on immune cells. So, here we have an example, or we have the pharmacology all teed up that the main intoxicating ligand in cannabis 
uh, triggers a major receptor uh, that is important in the immune response. So that immediately starts to implicate the, uh, the uh, I, I guess I call it the intoxicating ligand, but THC in the immune effect pathway. Um, my own interest in this has to do with the transition from innate to acquired or adaptive immunity. And while this is a bit wonky, what it means is that uh, the initial immune responses that we tend to make are more scattershot, polyspecific, we call it. They, you don't know what's coming at you, so you're going to throw your big bulldozers at it initially. But as the immune system recognizes and starts to uh, refine its response, it transitions from innate to acquired or adaptive immunity. And the bullets get a lot more selective and a lot more powerful. And this, in fact, is what's discussed in the antibody world as a transition from innate IgM immunity to more specific IgG immunity. And we've all gotten a good lesson in this in the SARS-CoV-2 world now, because we all think about antibody levels and, and all that, um, and anti-COVID antibody responses. I think this is on the tip of a lot of people's tongues. So I'm wondering, to the extent um, that ligands like THC um, that drives uh, CNR2 may be important in driving the transition from innate to acquired immunity. And we think we have tools to be able to get at that. And so um, I guess I would first and foremost be pointing my finger at that. And that is really kind of the basis of our uh, endocannabinoid immunity initiative that we're looking at in terms of CESC development work, specifically looking at uh, how cannabis use patterns may reflect the uh, evolving antiviral or anti-infectious disease response through the antibody response, because we can kind of decode that uh, based on um, the change from innate to acquired immunity, and we can hang it on various cannabinoids. So I think it's going to be a fruitful area uh, of work. Is there a role for phytocannabinoids and vaccines to work together? Wow, that's a really interesting question, Meg. It's something that, um, I mean, it's an issue of personal choice. Um, I have to say in my own experience, and I am now triple vaccinated. I'm of the age group that I was fortunate to get early access to Pfizer mRNA vaccines, and I now have my third, my booster shot. But I have to say, because of my belief and understanding of uh, ligands like THC driving CNR2 and driving what I would call humoral immunity, that is the antibody side, driving it towards better bullets, more specific bullets. Um, I was a proponent of using THC at this, um, in conjunction with the vaccines to try and drive my immune system towards uh, better acquired immunity. 
And while we're on this topic, I'm just going to get wonky again and talk about the two main classes of well-targeted bullet antibodies. Um, so I said earlier, IgM is kind of the bulldozer. It's polyspecific. It glues to everything. It's a garbage collector. But IgG is your specific antibodies that, that we all understand can mitigate um, infection. They're, they're great for neutralizing high t uh, at high, high titers. Um, they're, very, they're very powerful agents. Well, they come in two main classes. And the other class is one that hangs out in the secretory system, in airways, tears, saliva, genital secretions, all that. And it also is finely tuned, but it's designed to be in airways or in uh, areas that are uh, come in contact with the environment and have secretions. And the pathway for how you go from innate from an innate IgM to acquired IgA are less clear. Here we are in 2021, and I still do not understand all the the mechanisms that drive IgM to IgA production. But it is certainly intriguing that CNR2 may have a role in that. And so I'm going to hedge my bets and try to advocate for using ligands that are going to drive that immune response in the right direction. And so uh, what I ended up saying and doing is I'm going to get high so I don't die. And that's what I did during the, uh, my vaccine uh, immunization protocols. Well, I mean, if that's not uh, a perfect soundbite right there, I don't know what is. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I think I, I, we, we've talked a lot about where uh, – your personal professional experience meets with cannabinoids uh, and and how you got to where you are. But can can you tell us a little bit more about your organization, the the Clinical Endocannabinoid System Consortium? How was it founded? What's your mission? Who else is? Do you count amongst your members? So we started this in uh, 2015, um, and the we is, um, along with my esteemed clinical colleague, Jean Talleyrand, who had been in the cannabis medicine space in Northern California for over a decade now, has seen lots and lots of patients, um, both uh, during the period when they were needing recommendations to avoid law enforcement or to be able to grow uh, their own cannabis plants, as as you know, California was one of the early adopters of these kinds of programs, all the way through to how to use cannabis as medicine. He's a family practice and community medicine specialist. So. He and I teamed up in 2015 to answer the question, well, how do we recommend dosages? How, how do folks in, who are going to be using this botanical, where do they go to try and understand what dosages can be used? And because this is still pro, was or is still prohibition, 
at least as far as clinical development is concerned. Um, there's not a lot of guidance that comes out of the clinical literature on this. What do we do? And so we turn to a community medicine-based strategy. Um, Dr. Talleran is a big proponent of ask the community. They have those answers. And so we founded the CESC with a mission to try to understand how botanicals like cannabis can influence health, come, come up with best practices for that. And we are more observational driven than interventional. And I think that's what fits very well with the current zeitgeist. Because um, it is very, very expensive to run an interventional clinical trial, the classical paradigm that drugs are developed in. And sure, that's entirely appropriate and applicable for agents or new agents that have not been in man. Cannabis has been in man for millennia, tens of thousands of years. And so there is no first of man event here per se. So what we really are doing is surveying the community response to a given to a given botanical. And it fits very well with the observational approach that we incorporated very early and launched our flagship program, the dosing project. And that um, in proof of concept form was carried out between 2016 and 2018. Uh, we presented uh, results at the Emerald Conference. Uh, executive summaries of that are available on our CESC website. And for appropriate support levels, we will make our 50 page report on the conclusions of that available. So in addition to um, the members include Jean Talleyrand and myself, and then we've had some loyal followers along the years. This is an early stage nonprofit. And so everybody is doing this by love and sweat equity. Um, but it is, you know, it is a, a growing effort and we are actively trying to seek uh, financial support to move our initiatives forward. Um, so you mentioned the dosing project already and how you kind of got it started. Uh, were you surprised by the results or the findings that you guys concluded in the first round? And what are your plans for the dosing project 2.0? Well, surprised, Meg, I we were gratified because when we first conceived of this, I drew the figures that I thought we might be getting as results on a large whiteboard that I have downstairs in my basement that I think of think on occasionally. Um, so I actually, back at the very beginning, drew the results that we were hoping we would get. And lo and behold, we got them. So um, I'm not sure surprised. I think it's, you know, how nice um, to see the expectations met. Um, what perhaps we didn't know, and it's just the mechanism of the study, um, we didn't know how many respondents we would need in order to draw conclusions, statistically significant model conclusions. Um, and what we found, at least in the case of uh, pain and disordered sleep and the proof of concept phase of dosing project was aimed primarily 
uh, or was aimed exclusively at cannabis flower, uh, either type one, type two, type three, high THC, uh, one-to-one THC CBD, roughly equivalent, or high CBD type three. Um, We didn't know how many respondents we would need to get model significance. Uh, And what I mean by that is dose response curves for levels of THC and all that against your indicated response uh, effects. And we we were able to determine we got significance um, once we got up above 60 or so respondents. It became pretty clear. So I guess the surprise might be that, well, we did maybe we don't need hundreds and hundreds to get an answer. We can get it with a dull roar of 60 or 70 or so. So that's very gratifying to see that. Of course, going forward, the proof is in the pudding. Um, The stats tell you they kind of don't lie. And so you run your models until you get significance, if you do, and away you go. You've got your conclusion. The beauty of a dosing project observational study in contrast to an interventional is you can keep running your model as you accrue more information, more more study subjects. You don't take a tax hit, a statistical significance tax hit, as I call it, for rerunning the model. Because when you get new entrants, new respondents, it's valid to rerun the model. And so I hope I'm clear here. But what it means is you can keep rerunning it with the hopes of getting significance. And either you never do and you can't draw a conclusion or you hit about 60 or 70 and bingo, you can show dose response and what dose levels of of THC um, are used by the community and are reported as giving uh, almost complete or complete responses for pain or disordered sleep. That's a long-winded explanation for was I surprised. (laughs) (laughs) So. Kind of going along with what you just said, did you guys rerun the program? Like, for how many times have you since you first started it? So it was the proof of concept phase was, uh, as I said, uh, defined for cannabis flower, and it was smoked or vape. And the intent was to keep the matrix simple, uh, not complicated by um, all the vagaries of how cannabis products are processed and changed and all that. So we were trying to work with base matrix, if you will, to keep it simple. We chose a couple of indications, pain and disordered sleep that we knew from Dr. Talleran's work were the main main indications that folks were using cannabis for or reporting. So uh, reporting on, so we call that looking under the light. Um, so we were limited on uh, uh, product type, if you will. We were limited on indication, and we were limited on mode of administration. Um, we, we surveyed for both uh, use efficacy, if you will, in air quotes, because we were simply asking on a four-part scale if there was no response, partial, almost complete, or complete response. We were very deliberate in choosing a categorical index for that. And we, we 
uh, asked about a survey of about a dozen or so adverse events. Um, and some of them are not so adverse. Um, you know, one of the main ones that, that we got signals on that people were responding was dry mouth and cough. And I don't think anybody who's a smoke cannabis user would find that surprising that those are high incidence adverse events. But anyway, that was part of the survey and they certainly showed up. So um, what I'm trying to do is paint an early stage study protocol per se, somewhat limited, but it's what we use for proof of concept. Given our success with that, we are now moving to version 2.0, which is going to be a much larger um, reach or a much larger effort in terms of what we're trying to do. We're increasing indications, we're increasing to other modes or routes of administration, so oral, topical, et cetera, in addition to inhaled. We're expanding our indications uh, in addition to pain and disordered sleep. And we're bringing in more surveys that we now uh, have become aware of are very useful in this space, including mood surveys, uh, altered stage surveys, and as I alluded to earlier in the conversation with the infectious disease, we could survey for uh, time sick with um, viral symptoms or something like that. Again, that's a very easy survey series to get self-reporting on. So uh, we're very excited to be working on launching version two. And there again, um, any support help that we can get from folks that are interested in supporting this work uh, would be greatly appreciated. We are going to launch or relaunch the proof of concept phase just to be able to point to and have folks see what we have done as they read uh, the results of it. And um, hopefully we'll stimulate interest in driving version two. How does the observational study approach work with the traditional interventional clinical trial paradigm? We see the observational dosing project as really the first stage in the process towards being able to make bona fide label claims for products, whether they're recreational or whether they're wellness lifestyle or whether they are more traditional uh, medicinal and pharmaceutical type products. There's a very well-defined pathway for drug development for medicinal products. Um, what we might consider the way our dosing project approach is a phase one observational study where we're trying to get early efficacy ideas but uh, information, but also uh, signals on adverse events, which is really what you want out of a phase one. And so my short answer is that this begins the dossier. This begins moving forward for a given product that has a goal of making label claims. This is a relatively inexpensive way to survey uh, and to make decisions, if I'm a manufacturer and I have a couple different products, A, B, and C, maybe one of them is better than the other. And so going through a dosing project type of approach lets you 
prioritize. And then you can say, okay, we're going to really put pedal to the metal and move B forward because it looks to be the most promising. So the short answer is this begins to provide the information to create the dossier going forward for large, uh, for a much more in-depth clinical trial aimed at making label claims uh, or label expansion or whatever. It de-risks that whole process. Yeah, so um, maybe we can get into uh, applying that and and seeing how maybe this methodology pans out in uh, in practice. Uh, so I'd I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your work with uh, Jeff Tarrant and quantitative EEGs, uh, sort of. Uh, how you got into that, where, what it pointed at, uh, and maybe where the next steps with that kind of project is. No, thank you for that prompt, Evan. Um, so the way that it came about and what we're really, uh, this falls into the rubric of trying to understand the cannabis mind, I guess, is, is where we kind of put it. Um, I mentioned very early on that this was one of the really early drivers that I had very early in my career to set me, set me down the science and biochem route. So this is really the, the culmination of that, trying to work with folks like Jeff Tarrant to understand what actually underpins the cannabis experience is of super great interest. The way this came about is during my tenure as scientific director of the Emerald Conference, I got to see uh, a lot of the abstracts that were being sent in for submission, for presentation. And when this came in in 2019, I was extremely excited um, to learn more. And I reached out to Dr. Tarrant to see how willing he would be to collaborate, but maybe expand his initial description of what he wanted to present at Emerald. Uh, I wasn't sure how receptive he would be, and I wasn't sure how this was going to be taken. But the stars aligned. He was extremely receptive. Um, we were able to uh, amend and augment the study that he had already done to include some recommendations that we made. And that was presented at Emerald in 2019. That was the birth of a very strong collaboration between Dr. Tarrant and the CESC, which has endured to this day. So um, that's the short answer of how it came about. Um, probably the most important findings for us out of that were several fold. But it was aimed at trying to understand, are there changes in brainwave state as measured by quantitative EEG, putting a, a kind of a, a cap on subjects and seeing how their brainwave patterns may change before and after cannabis use. And we were able to draw some salient conclusions from this early proof of concept demonstration and um, they certainly have shaped our thinking 
going forward. Uh, Jeff produced a very rich data set of, of information that he then turned over to me. Uh, I'm a multivariate statistician nerd. And so I got to play with this for a long time to try and find patterns and all. And I think we've been pretty successful in drawing conclusions from this early proof of concept work that are now uh, defining the directions we're going to go now in pursuing this further. So not only did we get results for quantitative EEG, but he included a couple of surveys. And one of them in particular is very informative. It's called Brunel Mood. Um, and what Dr. Tarrant pioneered, I think, was using this in an acute setting rather than how it is traditionally used, which is to either you you sub, you, you uh, administer it um, and you draw a conclusion or you try to look at it as predictive of a future state, but it is not used in a before and after mode so much. And Dr. Tarrant used it for looking at change in mood state before and after cannabis use. So an acute uh, aspect of this. And we found a profound effect. We could use this mood scale this, uh, acutely to determine changes in mood after cannabis use. Um, he had done another study for the Red Cross with uh, guided meditation um, and change in anxiety state for blood donors who were waiting in line in a van, uh, outside of a van to give blood. And, you know, there's anxiety associated with that. And so he wanted to see if uh, there was a change in anxiety state by doing a, a guided meditation session uh, for those for those subjects uh, before that. And there was a very significant change in Bruno mood score by that. And he asked me to help with the data reduction, and we did. We it's peer reviewed, so I guess you could say well, I'm a card carrying statistician for acute Bruno mood change. So learning this from Jeff was very important because we can see how to incorporate this now into our work going forward, including dosing projects work where it's appropriate or applicable. But I should stress that these aspects are more interventional than the observational study approaches that we've been talking about, and they require more in-depth uh, invest investigational review board IRB approval because we've got human subjects here, and we fully intend to be complying with those important standards for research with human subjects. Um, but we are intending to continue our strain uh, and smoke cannabis uh, work in the context of quantitative EEG mood scores and what we have also found with another score set scale he used, altered states. Um, between mood and altered state, you begin to get a good set of survey questions that speak to what is behind getting high, what is the cannabis mind really all about. And so all this came about because of collaboration 
and it came out of the Emerald Conference. And so that, in a nutshell, is how we got to where we are today. Very proud of that. And so uh, did you, you actually were able to observe different effects on different types of brainwaves uh, from uh, varying chemovars? Is, is, am I correct in drawing this conclusion? Yes. Um, we, we went into this with the question, do strains matter? And we come out of it with a sense, I mean, or the conclusion that yes, strains matter. So we, the answer is yes, we are seeing differences in strains in different individuals. The, the challenge here, um, and it's going to be an ongoing challenge, is that people are different and you need to stratify folks into responder categories. And that's still a work in progress. So um, I hesitate to say that this strain causes this change globally um, which I, I think maybe you would like me to do, because I don't yet understand how different people are. We're aiming to do that. We've done some uh, multivariate analyses on the classes of response, and we have some pretty salient ideas on how people group, but it's still a little premature to be shouting that from the from the rooftops, I think. But Bottom line, yes, it looks like strains matter. It looks like there are strain differences. And um, it grossomoto is largely fitting with the chemotyping concept that I think is worth discussing now. Well, that that's that's fantastic. Um, so uh, I, I guess the, the, the chemotyping topic really uh, brings us to the, the, the chapter that's coming out this month in Advances in Cannabis Science. Uh, so uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about uh, what you mean by, by chemotyping. Are we talking about just cannabinoids? Are we talking about terpenoids? Are we talking about everything together um, and and why do we care? What does it mean? Well, questions that are very near and dear to my heart. So let me back up for a moment and just say, um, during the my foray in the immunology space, one of the big areas that I worked in was to try to understand the world of cytokines, which were a large set, big vocabulary list of endogenous uh, proteins, growth factors that we make that modulate the immune system. And I was very fortunate to be part of some forefront groups that were defining this vocabulary in the 80s and 90s, and which became very mainstream uh, in the immunology space. It was 
a question, uh, I mean, it was a large, trying to understand a repertoire and trying to define or come up with the tools that would allow you to even measure these individual compounds, uh, these proteins, and then come up with the vocabulary list. So I'm no stranger to that effort. And so I just kind of transplanted that onto the cannabis and cannabinoid space. Because while we're not talking about proteins of the immune system, we are talking about a large vocabulary list of small or not so small organic molecules that are made uh, by uh, the botanical. So it's, as a discipline, it's not that different. I feel very comfortable working in that arena. And so what I was trying to do was to make sense out of the small organic molecule chemical vocabulary of cannabis, much the same way we did in the early days of trying to understand cytokine biology in the immune system. And so uh, in the cannabis space, we use the word chemotyping because we're discussing the chemistry or the chemical types of small organic molecules. And frankly, our main goal is to try to, under, try to understand um, clinical correlates of cannabis chemotypes. There's lots of C's in that, but I think it describes the effort to a T. And what in putting together this vocabulary, you start to see how things fall into groups and segment and all of that. And frankly, if you're going to approach the question of kind of clinical correlates, you've got to characterize your groups or come up with groups in the first place that you can try to make sense and ask questions of. Because this is a very complex many-to-many -many problem, many compounds, many effects, and many different types of people's responses. So you got to start somewhere to deconvolute this. And just like we started in the cytokine space, trying to make sense out of groups of types of cytokines, we did this here as well. And uh, we already knew that there were principal types of cannabis cannabinoid types, and I alluded to them earlier in this talk, type one, two, and three. That's, you know, almost 20 years of history on that one now. Uh, Hillig, Carl Hillig and Malberg were instrumental in helping to see that first. And it's, we see that, um, we saw that in large data sets that we analyzed um, in 2014 or so, we were able to see those groupings. So, and I mean, that, that's pretty standard cannabis science. We don't dispute that um, there are these three major types based on uh, CBD and THC and CBD content ratios. Where it gets less clear is what about the uh, perceived sativa air quotes or indica effects? Um, the community tends to feel that there are a sense that there are this major dichotomy, but we've been hard pressed to really find clear chemical rationale for that, although you know we not for lack of trying. So I spent a good amount of time looking at terpene ratios uh, between different 
cultivar types and across different databases and data sets over the years. And we saw a noteworthy pattern that there is this major dichotomy between in a certain ratio type of terpenes in cannabis, namely the ratio type uh, based on beta pinene to limonene. It falls into two classes, uh, high beta pinene limonene and low beta pinene limonene. And they're pretty tight. Um, when we correlated that with aroma types, um, this was data from a data set that we were able to analyze from community-based aroma assignments from uh, the Golden Tarp Awards in Humboldt County in 2015. We could start to see how these ratio types mapped to the aroma categories, and we came up with um, a good mapping to two main aroma categories, floral for high beta pinene limonene and fuel for low beta pinene limonene. And so this is what we're promulgating and we're putting forward as a major dichotomy at this point. And this represents a good part of the story that is in the chapter uh, that you alluded to, the aroma, cannabis aroma as a foundation for chemotyping, which is in the uh, advances and recent advances in cannabis science book, which is coming out now. Um, we think it's foundational for how to define major cannabis chemotypes and moving forward into the uh, clinical effects or anticipated effects arena, we would say, what can we pin to the six? And uh, when I say six, I mean three cannabinoid types, type one, two, three, crossed with two aroma or beta pinene types or air quote sativa or indica or however you want to refer to it. But there's three times two is six. And so how much, how much progress can we make by hanging clinical effects on those six categories? It's a good place to start. We realize it's going to be much more nuanced and more granular, but Every journey starts with a first step. And if you try to answer too much, you get muddled. And so I think our short answer is uh, the chemotyping drives us in a pretty clear direction how to approach the clinical correlates of cannabis uh, based on this six-fold way. And that's the message we're trying to pound out now. We'll get more complicated or more granular as we move on, but let's start here first. And and does that translate into a a visible labeling system that that could be applied to products to to help consumers actually select something uh, with to to at least attempt to achieve an intended effect. Well, that would certainly help, wouldn't it? Because um, you, most consumers are really at sea. Um, strain names are not very satisfying. Sativa and indica dichotomy is not particularly satisfying. And as the field moves on, we all recognize strains don't really mean a lot. Um, uh, large 
collections of folks are going, well, we don't even understand how sativa and indica is, is relevant. We do understand that there are likely two major effect types, uh, uh, you know, sedated, hypnotic for maybe what we would air quote indica and uh, cognitive boosted, um, excited, maybe a little bit of anxiety, um, maybe clear, clearer thinking associations that we might call air quote sativa, what I kind of refer to as blazing code, which I mean, you know, for computer programmers that sit around smoking the right strains and coding all day, um, strains that would help with that. But what are the underlying chemotypes and how do we label or indicate that? So we've spent, um, I, I've been involved in some, some, what we think are innovative approaches for labeling based on chemotyping and icons and color. And we think that putting that together will allow for uh, a very useful labeling strategy that we hope to bring forward and that we hope is accessible for the user community. Think ski slope designations maybe, but color coded at the same time. Anything to to help me navigate, you know, you walk into uh, a dispensary like uh, Planet 13 in Las Vegas and the amount of choice is is paralyzing. Uh, you, you have you have information overload and uh, I, I, that's not good for for the consumer. That's not good for business. So uh, anything that, that moves us along, I think, is going to be appreciated by most everybody. No, we, def we definitely need it. And given the restrictions on being able to look at or smell, and as I said, we think we have olfactory cues here, but those have been kind of ruled out now by the regulatory environments associated with marketing. Uh, mainstream cannabis, you can't smell it anymore. Um, it, you can look at it, but if you're lucky, but that's about all. That doesn't really tell you necessarily a lot about its chemotype or its effect. I mean, if you walk into a wine store, um, you could say, well, I'm almost at sea. I read all these taster labels or little index cards below all these bottles on the rack. And I'm a little bit at sea, I don't quite know, but you can tell if the wine is red or white. You know, you can tell that from what's in the bottle, you can see it. You can tell from the varietal type, uh, especially as you develop a palate. Yeah, I prefer Pinot Grigio, or I really like the grassiness of a Sauvignon Blanc, and you can kind of look at it that way. We're not there in cannabis, but it would certainly be nice to have those kinds of AIDS, and we think a labeling strategy along the lines of what we were just defining would go a long way to helping consumers make informed, informed choices. I, I just want to add that that's especially important on the patient side. Um, you know, you have a lot of novice users there who this might be their first time. And if it does, if their experience doesn't go well, they might never try it again. So I definitely commend you for this work. I think having labels like this would really help a lot of people. 
Well, thank you for that. And I'll just pick up on that to say for the users that are using this for a defined purpose, what is so important is reproducibility, batch-to-batch consistency, all those quality, uh, maintenance of quality attributes and all that that are part and parcel of any good manufacturing process in standard industry. And I know we're making efforts in the cannabis space to uh, move in that direction, but we can do better. And there's still really a need to get at easy, accessible ways of getting at the overall product quality. And maybe we'll just finish this up by um, stressing what I think or or, uh, emphasizing two main areas that I think are going to be very fruitful in defining the overall product characteristics based on chemotyping. And one of them is I've been very excited is the 2D GC or very highly resolving uh, gas chromatography by gas chromatography analysis approach where you can find a lot of resolution. You can really resolve a lot of the chemicals by working in two dimensions uh, rather than the traditional one that you do in gas chromatography. So you can um, separate on the basis of uh, volatility retention time, and then you can separate uh, each of those samples uh, on the basis of hydrophilic or hydrophobicity. Um, This gives you an orthogonal approach and is highly resolving. It's almost, you could argue, it's it's like an MSMS or something like that. So bringing that type of uh, capability to bear on this gives a very interesting and informative pattern of underlying compounds in a botanical like cannabis. And so we've been exploiting that with groups that are using uh, 2DGC technology like Sepsol's platform, along with uh, sophisticated discriminant analysis, multivariate approaches that they provide to understand uh, what the underlying chemistry leads to, and then being able to draw conclusions, make labels, make label claims, et cetera. The second and accessible approach here, I think, is spectroscopy or photonics as an approach here. And I think by combining both of those disciplines, we're going to be that much further along in not only understanding the complexity of the space, but likely providing tools and approaches that are accessible to the common user or collections of users. It's not going to be necessarily hidden away in a very expensive analytical lab that only highly resourced people can use. That would be my goal maybe in closing this, is that we move towards more accessible analytics that allow us to tease out, deconvolute, and simplify the complexity of this really wonderful plan. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Abrams. We appreciate hearing your thoughts on these important topics that are helping to move cannabis science forward and advance the industry. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.